very good to see all of you here today. I'm glad that you have come to join us uh, for our service. And uh, those of you who have been coming regularly, you know that we are uh, coming into the end of the series uh, for such a time as this. Really, uh, a study in the book of Esther, very brief, but I think very uh, powerful uh, look at Esther. Um, not so much as Esther the example, but Esther as a signpost who points us to God. The first week, we uh, saw that God is sovereign. That even when we don't see uh, um, clear outworking of God, you can be sure He's working even behind the scenes. Right? Even when we are not aware of it, God is at work. It's, he works whether we are aware or not. And that God was certainly at work in Esther's life. Last week, we saw how Esther stood up for such a time as this, but really ultimately uh, telling us that all of us have a role to play, that God puts us in places uh, to make a difference because He's called us to be uh, part and parcel of His world and, and His plan to restore the world uh, to what He intends it to be. Today, we look at this uh, final bit of the story and I've entitled it, Finding Rest from Our Enemies, or really, Getting Rest from Our Enemies. Because it's not about us seeking it out, but really about us receiving what God has given to us in terms of rest. And, you know, it's, I think, it's significant for us to um, um, uh, look at this passage as we begin a new year. And, you know, New Year seems to never end, right? The New Year, the, the Western New Year, and then we've got Chinese New Year coming up. I uh, already started some of our um, reunion dinners, so really feeling the, the, the strain of uh, <laughs> Chinese New Year. Anyway, let's get into uh, what we are going to look at. And I want us to see um, from Esther uh, uh, verse 24 of chapter 9 and following, uh, um, uh, 9 to 27, uh, 24 to 27 rather, you know, uh, because it sort of gives us uh, uh, an idea of what we are looking at. Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted to crush and destroy them on a date determined by casting lots. Lots of called Purim. Uh, but when Esther came before the king, he issued a decree causing Haman's evil plot to backfire, and Haman and his sons were impaled on a sharpened pole. This is... Oops, back... This is why, that is why this celebration is called Purim, because it is the ancient word for casting lots. So because um, Mordecai's letter uh, and because of what they had experienced, the Jews throughout the realm agreed to inaugurate this tradition, pass it on to their descendants and to all who became Jews. They declared they would never fail to celebrate these two prescribed days at the appointed time each year. And you know what? That's uh, precisely what goes on uh, now in uh, Israel. Um, we see... Oh, where's the picture of Purim? Anyway, yeah. Uh, March 6th to 8th is Purim. And they continue to celebrate it. This is a very mild picture of Purim. Uh, if you go to Israel that date, actually it's a wild party. <laughs> You know, and people will dress up in uh, masquerade and, and costumes and really uh, celebrate. And they celebrate this fact that God delivered them in the midst of uh, a, a potential genocide. You know, reminding themselves of God's great deliverance. But unfortunately, the celebration has turned fairly secular. So it's just an excuse to party. 
It's like the uh, Israeli version of Mardi Gras, right? And, and all kinds of stuff comes out which isn't necessarily healthy. But nonetheless, this is where it came from. But if we look again into the passage we are uh, looking at today, in verse 22 in particular, it says, As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. They, you know, in Israel, they take the second part of this verse very seriously. But it's the first part I want us to focus on because it says that, you know, that God gave the Jews rest from their enemies or relief from their enemies. Uh, in the New King James, it says rest. And actually, that's precisely what the Hebrew word means. I was telling the young people yesterday, the word in Hebrew is noah. <laughs> you think about noah, you don't know, well, rest, <laughs> relax <laughs> in our own uh, colloquial language. But I want to bring out three points from this passage and uh, for us to think about, reflect on, and hopefully God to speak to us through. You know, how are we going to get rest from our enemies? Firstly, how Esther got rest from her enemies. Secondly, how Jesus gives us rest. But finally, how we can get rest from our enemies. And if you remember, uh, or if you've read through the book rather, you will know a little bit of the background to what has been happening. Now, how in the world did Haman get King Xerxes? Ahasuerus is the Hebrew name, Xerxes the Greek. Uh, how did he get him to agree to kill off all the Jews? Well, you know, because actually the empire was under some pressure. They were needing money in their coffers. Their Greek campaign didn't go off so well. I, I told you Xerxes is the king that came against King Leonidas 300, that movie, uh, the Battle of Thermopylae. Um, and, and he was not able to conquer Greece, even though he wanted to, because that was the last bit of the empire he wanted to sort of uh, dominate. And it took a lot of money. And so Haman spoke to him and said, look, if we kill the Jews, we can take all their money, you know, and uh, you, you give the people who kill the Jews the bounty, but make them pay a portion of it to your treasury. And so therefore, you know, uh, uh, build back your wealth, in that sense. And it's into this breach that Esther stepped. Uh, last week we saw how she you know, went to the king and she uh, uh, wanted to find justice for people. And here we see the continuation of that, how she went about getting justice for people. So what is not read is the fact that she first threw a banquet for the king and for Haman. And they came and at the end of the banquet, the king said, you know, what do you want? You know, I, I, I enjoy being with you. Let me give you anything you want. And she says, can we have another banquet? <laughs> she, she, she understood. And this is where in verse 1, we pick it up in chapter 7. Uh, King and Haman went in to feast. This is the second banquet with Queen Esther. And on the second day, they were drinking wine after the feast. King again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom... It shall be fulfilled. And this is where we begin to see, you know, she was uh, uh, really wise. She knew what she was doing. Because she understood, remember, if you read, uh, uh, or you were here last week, 30 days she hadn't been called into the king's presence. In other words, she had probably lost some favor already. And she realized she needed to regain that favor. 
And in their culture, as much as in ours, you know, uh, the way you build relationship is through meals. Uh, yesterday we had uh, um, um, Karen's extended family's sort of reunion dinner, and it's been the first since COVID, because prior to that there were so many restrictions, we didn't get to see everyone. It was a great opportunity to reconnect with some of the distant relations, find out what's going on, who's you know, um, um, moving on. Some people are not doing so well health-wise. You know, and, and that sort of thing, to, to gain a relationship. And she certainly understood that she needed to re-establish a connection with the king. Because what she was about to ask is not an easy ask. And so she builds it up to that. And then we see how she ex, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, exercises great negotiating skill. She says, King, if I found favor in your sight, O king... And if it pleases you, you know, she starts up by pointing out, this is the premise, I'm your queen. You know, it's like the woman batting her lashes at the husband saying, you love me, right? <laughs> you know? And the husband sort of guesses, okay, what do you want to buy now? <laughs> He's trying to uh, uh, curry favor, but she's, she's pointing out and she's laying the groundwork because then she says, spare my life and spare the lives of my people. You see, she was putting into his mind this uh, uh, um, idea, but it wasn't an idea. It's, it's understood that if you make an assault on the queen, you're actually assaulting the king. You know, this is a new way of looking at happy wife, happy life. <laughs> right? If, if, if someone is going to uh, um, uh, threaten the queen, the king will feel threatened. And so, of course, uh, King Ahasuerus is alarmed. And, um, you know, he asked the question, uh, you know, what is going on here? What is it that you are, uh, uh, who is threatening you? Who is he, where is he uh, that has dared to do this? And this is where she drops the bomb. She says, our other dinner guest, Saman, is this evil and wicked enemy. Wow, can you imagine being in that room? You know, he was elated. Haman thought he was being elevated. I mean, having a private uh, dinner with the king and queen, not once, but twice. And then suddenly, boom! <laughs> His life is uh, uh, hanging in the balance right now. It says that Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And you can tell how terrified he was because... You see, what happened was the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Now, if you know the law of the land, no one, no male person could be in the presence of the king's harem within you know, uh, uh, seven paces, even if the king was there. And if the king is not there, you cannot even be in the same room. And Haman would have known this because he had operated in the courts of the king for a while. He's you know, quite the political operator. And he was so stunned, he didn't leave when the king left. Now the king left because he was mad. And you know, as would be the case, he wasn't mad at himself. Although it was really his mistake in the first place for allowing the edict to be made without thinking through the implications of it. But nonetheless, he was probably really mad at Haman. Yet he was here in a bind because uh, if you read later on in, in the next chapter, chapter 8, it points out that any decree that's made by the king cannot be rescinded. 
His word is law and it's law in perpetuity. So here he is stuck. What is the way out uh, for him to get out of this? And he had to take some time to think. And how is he going to deal with Haman? Right? Because he was only doing what the king had already uh, allowed him to do. There's no way he can come against Haman because Haman didn't do anything wrong per se. What was he to do? But we see, you know, in the panic, and I, I'm guessing because, you know, I think they were drunk, <laughs> partly. In his panic, drunken state, he's pleading to the queen, and then he ultimately ends up falling on the couch, and the king walks in at that precise moment, and voila, problem solved. <laughs> right? He's done something that deserves death. And so he gets arrested. That's what it means that the, uh, the word left the mouth of the king and they covered Haman's face. They arrested him. And you know, you look into this and you see that uh, Haman was probably not a very well-liked uh, character. Uh, in fact, you read in uh, chapter 3 when he was first elevated to his position, the king had to command people to bow to him. I mean, you know, if you are a high official, people just bow to you automatically out of a sign of respect. But Haman was probably not so well like that. The command had to be given so that people would bow. That's where the whole trouble started because Mordecai would not bow. Right? And, and, and in this case, we see he wasn't well liked because it, one of the servants said immediately, oh, I have a solution for you, king. He's already erected gallows and he wanted to kill uh, a Mordecai whom you uh, had just favoured and who had saved your life. Why don't you hang him on those gallows instead? And that was that off with his head. What's interesting is that gallows, which is translated here in the English, in the ESV, if you look into the Hebrew, is actually tree. You know? And think about that for a moment, and we'll come back to that in a moment as well. As I mentioned, you know, king's decree can't be revoked. And now that Haman was killed, they needed a new 2IC. So Mordecai was elevated to his place. And Mordecai was a really smart guy. So he came up with a solution. How do you reverse this decree? He did it by issuing a new decree which says all the Jews now have permission to defend themselves. That if anyone comes after them, go ahead and kill them because, you know, you are defending your own life. And, you know, to make uh, even more clear, he says, okay, you can also take everything that they have. Go ahead and plunder them. That is, you know, uh, mutually assured destruction, right? The, the, the detan, they're trying to... <laughs> so if the threat of, you know, being killed, if you try and kill them, hopefully it will hold people off. But unfortunately, you know, greed rules and it's the same all around the world, all through the ages. You know, there were still people who came against the Jews. And there was still uh, bloodshed, ultimately, because the Jews had to defend themselves. But... What's interesting in the story as it goes on is that the Jews chose not to take anything from the people they killed. To point out that what they were doing was strictly self-defense. It was not to enrich themselves. They weren't going about bloodthirsty, you know, uh, trying to make sure that they came off better, but to see that justice was served. So we see here that ultimately Esther found rest from her enemies that she got rest from her enemies. It was given to her because that was God's promise all along. That's God's promise since the beginning of you know, uh, salvation history. You see that 
when uh, God spoke with Moses, he promised him rest, that they would enter into rest. He said the same thing to Joshua, that they would enter into rest to David, to Solomon. You know, and the reality is this. Yes, all of them found rest to a degree. But it was only temporary, isn't that right? Because battles continued to be fought, even on down to this uh, time and season in Esther. And later on, in uh, um, the book of Daniel, book of prophecy, Daniel 7, talks about the Son of Man who's going to come and who will establish a kingdom that will be forever and will ultimately establish an eternal rest. And so, you know, this was in the psyche of the uh, Jewish people. This is in their recorded history that they understand that God's promise is to give them rest. Into that, we now come to my next point, which is that how Jesus gives rest, gives us rest from our enemies. How does Jesus give us rest from our enemies? And if you know the uh, Gospels, you know that the disciples who've been steeped in uh, um, uh, the, the Bible and Scripture, who had read all the prophecies of the Messiah, including Daniel 7, when Jesus self-identified as the Son of Man, which is what Daniel 7 points to as the Messiah, you can imagine how their expectations ran high. That they were looking to someone who would again free them from their enemies, who would once again give them rest from all, this en- uh, 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 all the enemies around them. In other words, thinking that Jesus is going to come and really defeat the Romans, who had now you know, become their new uh, uh, slave masters, so to speak. You know this to be true because, for example, you remember the account in Luke chapter 9 when they came across a Samaritan village and you know, rejected Jesus and his teaching. What was it the disciples said? You know, they thought back Old Testament, they thought Elijah, you know, Jesus, why don't you call down fire? You know, burn up this village. <laughs> And Jesus said, oh dear, you guys got it wrong and then moved on. You know, didn't spend a lot of time. But that was what they were thinking, how Jesus should be giving them rest from their enemies. But what did Jesus actually do? He taught them, love your enemies. Pray for them. He taught them, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn your other cheek. If someone takes your shirt, give them your coat also. If someone forces you to walk one mile, walk the second mile. He was telling them things which, you know, did not compute, humanly speaking. And, you know, ultimately, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, what happened? You can see that the disciples were really waiting, you know, for Jesus to step into his Messiah role. Peter drew his sword, cut off Malchus' ear. It's interesting because the name of the person's ear was cut off. It's told to us. He was the uh, attendant of the high priest. We know his name because he was probably a Christian after that. (laughs) Because Jesus took the ear and healed it. And he said, put your sword away. And he went and he subjected himself to a, a nonsense kangaroo court trial and ultimately went to the cross. And on that cross, as he hung there, and as his life ebbed out, he said about his enemies, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
You know, there's often a misconception that goes around that thinks, you know, if we read the Old Testament, God always seems like a God of wrath and anger. He smites His enemies. Whereas the New Testament God is a God of love. You know, and, and as if pitting one against the other, a God of love who forgives enemies, who, you know, uh, uh, does things in a very different way. But actually, it's the same God. Do you realize that the cross is the ultimate warfare against evil? That it is the wrath of God being poured out upon evil. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, he gives us an understanding of this. It says in Galatians uh, 3 verses 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. That we may be redeemed through faith. Haman, the guilty man, was hung on a tree in place of the innocent Mordecai. When Christ came, he reversed the process. The innocent Jesus hung on a tree on behalf of all of us, the guilty ones. That ultimately, the cross gives us rest from our enemies. How does he do that? He does that by destroying all evil. You see, God doesn't want to give us rest from our enemies. He wants to give us rest from enmity. The root of the problem. Enmity is what's devouring this world like a cancer. Enmity is what all the ills in this world come from. That's why in uh, Ephesians 2, he continues to say, you know, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Again, in um, um, the New King James, sometimes I do like that version. He says there, thereby putting to death the enmity. That's what happened on the cross. Now, if you stop and you think about it, if Jesus had done what, you know, in human thinking we would have done, if Jesus had fought and defeated uh, the Romans, which is the normal uh, response, right? Fight evil with evil. Um, 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 overcome, you know, if... Uh, Enemy whacks you once, whack them harder with a bigger bat. You know, uh, and, and you think you're going to get rest that way? That begins the cycle of evil, isn't it? Or it continues the cycle of evil, right? Or even if you do whack the person until they're gone, <laughs> rest is only temporary because it's until the next enemy comes along. See, by dying on the cross, Jesus ultimately destroyed sin and death. By becoming a curse for us by hanging on the tree, he killed enmity. When we fight evil with evil, evil always wins. You realize that? You ask me, Pastor, how does evil win? Evil wins in two ways. Firstly, evil hardens us. When we fight evil with evil, it hardens us. When you find yourself in a dispute, now I know most of you don't like people literally, okay, you won't necessarily, and I, if you do, we can talk after the service, come minister to you <laughs> and pray with you. <laughs> but we find metaphorical ways to whack people, don't we? 
by our words, by our manipulation, by doing things to try and gain our pound of flesh, so to speak. You see, it hardens us because we become self-righteous. We think, look, I'm in the right. I would never do something like that. Evil has spread into your own heart. When you fight evil with evil. But when you fight evil with evil, it also makes your enemy even more of an enemy. Even if you kill them, their children will come after you. Then you have a lifelong blood feud, right? Between the two clans. You see this actually happening in life. Everyone else before Jesus defeated their enemies by fighting evil with evil. But the problem is they never dealt with enmity, which is the root of it. Which is why Jesus overcame evil with good. That the way to overcome our enemies is to love them, is to forgive them. Not to respond for hurt with hurt, but to respond with grace. Not just any grace, but with the violence of grace. You realize grace is a very violent action? I know many of you have uh, watched the uh, Les Miserables, the musical. But it's originally a book written by Victor Hugo. Uh, now, my, my, my family knows this, and I'll let you in on a secret. I really can't stand musicals. It's like, just tell me. Why do you have to sing and then repeat the chorus again and again? And just tell me what you want to say. <laughs> you know, that's my... Sorry, I'm sorry if you enjoy musicals. You know, my family all enjoys musicals, so they do. But if you read the book, it's really interesting. You know this story well. I'm, I'm talking about not Hugh Jackman's version, all right, but Victor Hugo's version. Um, the, one of the um, um, important points in that story is about this guy named Jean Valjean, who was a hardened criminal, spent 19 years in jail. You know, initially jail because he was just trying to feed his family. But as with a lot of people, when you get into the system, it hardens you. And he becomes bitter because of all the injustice that has been wrought upon him. Well, somewhere in the scene, he finally finds uh, uh, um, a place to rest, uh, a place of refuge with a bishop. And the bishop graciously takes him into his home. And lo and behold, because of who Jean Valjean is, he steals from the bishop. Makes off with the silverware in the uh, middle of the night and runs away. But he doesn't get very far because the police catch him. And the police recognized where he had been or had come from and brought him back to the bishop, you know, don't know, pulling him by his ear or leading him, you know, in handcuffs, I don't know. But nonetheless, he walks in and, you know, the bishop is roused from his sleep and uh, the police said, you know, this man has stolen from you. And the bishop, oh, no, no, no. He took away the gift I gave him and I tried to catch you before you left because you forgot these two silver candlesticks and takes the candlesticks and gives it to Jean Valjean. And the police are like, okay, I can't arrest him for anything because you know, apparently he didn't steal. It's a gift from the bishop. You know, and the bishop says to him, go in peace, become an honest man. I'm purchasing your soul with these candlesticks. And he went, goes off. And if you know the story, you know that ultimately he didn't turn over a new leaf immediately. He actually stole from a young boy. <laughs> and then... He gets so overcome with guilt. I'm going to read for you excerpts from the book because I think it's powerful. 
uh, uh, the, the scene that is played out. When Jean Valjean left the bishop's house, as we saw, his thoughts were unlike any he had ever known before. He could understand nothing of what was going on inside him. He stubbornly resisted the angelic deeds and the gentle words of the old man. You have promised me to become an honest man. I'm purchasing your soul. I withdraw it from the spirit of perdition and I give it to God. This kept coming back to him. In opposition to this celestial tenderness, he summoned up pride, the fortress of evil in man. He dimly felt that this priest's pardon was the hardest assault, the most formidable attack he had ever sustained. That grace does violence. I'm going to skip over uh, because it can go quite long. One thing was certain, he did not himself doubt it that he was no longer the same man. That the grace he received from this bishop had changed him. That it was no longer in his power to prevent the bishop from having talked to him and having touched him. And you skip on down a little bit and then you see the scene unfolds. Jean Valjean wept long. He shed hot tears. He wept bitterly with more weakness than a woman, with more terror than a child. While he wept, the light grew brighter and brighter in his mind, an extraordinary light, light at once transporting and terrible. His past life, his offense, his long expiation, his brutal exterior, his hardened interior, his release made glad by so many schemes of vengeance. What had happened to him at the bishop's, his last action, his, this theft of 40 sous from a child, a crime the meaner and more monstrous than it became, that it came after the bishop's pardon, all this returned and appeared to him clearly. But in a light that he had never seen before, he beheld his life. And it seemed to him horrible, his soul, and it seemed to him frightful. There was, however, a softened light that upon that life and upon that soul, it seemed to him that he was looking upon Satan by the light of paradise, i.e. he's in paradise looking out and seeing Satan at work. How long did he weep thus? What did he do after weeping? Where did he go? Nobody ever knew. It is known simply that on that very night, the stage driver who drove at that time on the Grenoble route and arrived at about three o'clock in the morning saw as he passed through the bishop's street a man in the attitude of prayer, kneeling upon the pavement in the shadow before the door of the bishop. That's how Jesus gives us rest from our enemies. But finally, in conclusion, and very quickly, how can we have rest from our enemies? If you truly understand the gospel, it gives you rest from your enemies. Firstly, it gives you rest from your enemies because you, if you understand the gospel, you know who you truly, really are. You know your real condition. If you stop and you think about it, that if we had to be bought with a price, the price of Jesus on the cross, you must realize how desperate our condition must have been for such an extreme, for God to have taken such an extreme measure. That's how bad I am. Nothing else could save me. 
when you understand the gospel, it humbles you. And in that way, it then inoculates you from evil because, see, when you get whacked by someone, when you get attacked by someone, if you don't have the gospel, you get up on your high horse and you say, oh, you, look at you. I would never do anything like that. You know, and you become judgmental and you then believe that it's your role to mete out justice. But if you understand the gospel and you understand that you are a sinner saved by grace, that the gospel says, I'm no better than you. And nothing that your enemy does will for- cause you to rise up and sit in judgment of them. It's terrible. I'm not making light of it. Yes, it's horrible to be attacked by others. But the understanding is, but for the grace of God, there go I. That's the first way the gospel helps us to gain rest from our enemies. But the second way is this, that ultimately the gospel tells us who we truly are in terms of our worth and our value. That God believed that I was worth dying for. Doesn't that make us secure in who we are? That God, you know, left His throne of glory and came down to earth and He went to the cross on my behalf and your behalf for us. Last week I talked about the fact that if you make your net worth your self-worth, you become vulnerable. You become, you know, uh, uh, putting your stock in performance. But if, again, in this way, if you make your net worth your self-worth, you know what? You're always going to be vulnerable to enemies because enemies can get at your self-worth by attacking your possessions, your money, what you have. And I talk about enemies in a very broad sense, whether it be actual enemies, physical, or the accuser of the brethren, enemy, or even you yourself as the enemy. Your insecurity, not having enough. You will always find, you know, uh, um, that, that your treasure uh, will keep you from finding rest because you're so anxious and you're so worried that you're going to lose it all because that's where you gain your, your value and your worth. Or, if for you, it's your reputation before other people. Again, the enemy can attack your reputation, can slander you before others, you know, can... Uh, um, put into your mind this question, you know, what will other people think? (laughs) And it can be a very crippling question. I know because I've been there, done that. Right? Even have had to go through therapy to deal with it myself. Uh, uh, And and needed to deal with this issue of, of, of where we put our worth in our reputation. Or, you know, worst come to worst, the enemy says, I'll kill you. What does the gospel tell us as a Christian? It says, go ahead, take my life. I'll be immediately with Jesus in paradise, in the glorious form, where there is joy forevermore. What can you threaten me with as an enemy that the gospel doesn't have a solution for? When you believe the gospel, no weapon formed against you will prosper because your real treasure, your real reputation, your real life is rooted in Christ.
And as I end, as, as we think about this message, as we go to the table of the Lord, to remind ourselves of the heart of the gospel, that Christ came to earth, that He went to the cross willingly on our behalf. He died for us. Where the blood, the bread broken symbolizes His body broken for us. The wine that we drink is His blood which was shed for us. I want you to hear the invitation that Jesus made, which was in our Gospel reading. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace. And we thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes to the power of your love, the power of the grace of the gospel. Lord, for so many of us, for all of us, we have struggled time and time again against our enemies. Whether they be real people, or they be our circumstances, or even the inner voice that plagues us. And Lord, we thank you that your word teaches us that you came not to help us to defeat our enemies, enemies, but to deliver us from enmity. That your death on the cross, Jesus' death on the cross, restored the relationship with you. But as a result, it can also restore the relationship with others. Father, I pray that these lessons we have learned over these three weeks, but especially today, we would carry with us into this season of Chinese New Year where we will have opportunities to meet many people whom we have maybe long considered our enemies. Father God, we come before you and acknowledge that, Lord, we need your grace to overcome them. More than that, Lord, to win them to be channels of grace to them. That, Lord, the grace we show them is not because we are gracious people in and of ourselves, but because we have received such a rich grace from you. I pray, Lord, that this grace will overflow from each and every one of our hearts. That it will flow into the lives of those around us. And even if we don't see you at work immediately, Lord, we will trust that you are sovereign, that you are deeply at work both in them and in us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. I ask and pray all these things in your Son's most precious name and all God's people say.